Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. In this episode, Robin Roman talked to writer, director, and producer Daisy Eris Campbell, a leading countercultural voice in the UK. Enjoy. Uh, welcome, folks. We are very excited today uh, to welcome Daisy Eris Campbell to our Feeling Bookish podcast. I've been trying to talk to Daisy for ages, it seems like, and we finally overcame a bunch of technical issues, and she's with us all the way from England. Um, I'm joined by Rob, and and uh, he is in Portland. I am here in Ventura, and this is Roman. Uh, I was just going to just introduce Daisy by, by uh, saying that she's a writer, actress, and a theater director who, to me, it seems like she's one of the leading countercultural uh, figures in England right now, and she's doing some very, very exciting stuff. And I want our audience uh, to sort of know about what's going on there because I think it's uh, the creative energy coming out of that, out of your quarters over there, Daisy, is just tremendous and a lot of fun. Um, oh, yeah. Because we tend to kind of talk a little bit too seriously, or not sometimes, you know, just not too seriously, but seriously about books here. And I, uh, I, I want to bring the levity back into our serious book discussions. So by way of an introduction... Um, uh, my background in, in, in sort of discordianism goes back to, uh, my teenage years when I read the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea. Um, as Rob remembers, uh, I started using words like fnord and uh, the number 23, uh, kept on popping up, uh, in my speech all the time. In fact, it's, uh, Rob, I think you're using it for <laughs> one of your emails. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, I, I can re recall uh, you talking about that, and it's it's trickled into my life. Well, I got very excited because you know, at, at seventeen when I read it, it 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 gave me so much food for thought that I'm still at fifty, kind of digesting what I've read because that that book, um, well, those 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 three books um, introduced me to people like Leary, Lily, uh, you know. Krzybski, Ezra Pound, Joyce, Reich, Crowley, Buckminster Fuller. I just wrote some of these names randomly down. Uh, it's not just the Luminatus trilogy, but from, from all of Robert Anton Wilson's writings. The Luminatus trilogy was more of a, a spoof, I guess you would say, on conspiracy theories. It was published in the mid-70s. Um, it was, uh, you know, Dan, people like Dan Brown basically lifted a lot of these ideas and, and made them you know, more popular. A very bland form, but uh, I think um, uh, Robert Anton Wilson and, and Shea, they were kind of the originators of that kind of paranoid uh, fiction where basically the premise is that all conspiracy theories are true. So when you go from that premise, what happens is, is you have this incredibly complex book um, that is very strange because when you read it, you begin to doubt your own sort of understanding of reality, a.k.a. sanity. Uh, and there's a very specific term that Robert Anthony Wilson uses for that is the chapel per perilous. When you enter this space of just not really, you know, up is down, down is up, you're not sure what's going on. Um, and so at 17, when you read something like that, it kind of, you know, it messes you up a little bit. Um, and then I found out that this Illuminatus book that I loved so much was uh, staged uh, in England. Robert Anton Wilson actually traveled to England, and a certain person by the name of Ken Campbell, who happens to be the father of our guest today, staged this, uh, I believe, in 1977. And it was a nine-hour extravaganza. 
uh, it, it was just insane, an insane undertaking. Uh, and just to give you a background on Ken Campbell, he is, um, well, The Guardian called him one of the most original and unclassifiable talents in British theater in the past uh, 50 years. Um, uh, the artistic director of the Liverpool Everman Theatre called him, you know, he said, he was the door through which many hundreds of kindred souls entered a madder, braver, brighter, funnier, and more complex universe. So here comes this guy, Ken Campbell, who loves science fiction. He finds this strange book, the Illuminatus Trilogy, and he decides to stage it. Uh, and through a series of interesting, I guess, coincidences, you would call them? Uh, synchronicities. Um, Daisy herself was conceived uh, during one of the more dull bits of this production backstage. So, and she was given the name, the middle name of Eris, which is uh, corresponding to the goddess of chaos, uh, who is the goddess of um, uh, this invented religion that's part of the Illuminatus trilogy called Discordianism. It's kind of a spoof of religion. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's got its own saints and goddesses and and deities and 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 rules like no eating hot dog buns on Friday. Um, and while it's kind of all fun and games, it had kind of a serious intent, or at least it gave us 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 folks, us seekers, uh, certain tools to to be able to navigate the symbolic universe outside of the sort of the status quo. So I know I just rushed to this introduction, Daisy, <laughs> kind of throwing in <laughs> everything in there. But um, I became aware oh, of not you everything. around Don't 2014. Worry. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, say that again. I became aware of you, I think, around 2014 when you decided to stage uh, uh, the play called Cosmic Trigger, which is what Robert Antel Wilson wrote after he wrote the Illuminatus Trilogy. It's a nonfiction series of books that sort of dealt with the, describing how he wrote the Illuminatus trilogy and what it caused, uh, what the kind of mayhem it caused, it caused in his life. So you decided to stage that as, you know, your dad staged the Illuminatus trilogy and you said, well, I'll do the follow-up, the sort of the sequel, Cosmic Trigger. Yeah. And so can you sort of introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about how you came to, to do Cosmic Trigger? I know it's a big story, but maybe you can sort of condense it for us. Well, no, you've you've kind of said a lot of it, which was, you know, I grew up. I mean, OK, so imagine the effect that reading Illuminatus at 17 had on you and that kind of mind bending uh, response. Now imagine that um, you read it. In fact, I was in fact, of course, I was I was 23 when I finally got around to reading it, although <laughs> it's legend was something that I grew up with. And of course, so many of my dad's mates who were to become like extended family for me had been in this production, had lived and breathed this crazy book, had learnt the lines from it, had, you know, embarked on insane adventures as a result of it. He, you know, the uh, the guy who'd been building the set for Illuminatus went on to be part of one half of the KLF that then burned a million pounds on the island of Jura. I mean, you know, the... The ripple effect of this extraordinary yes. undertaking was enormous. And I grew and I was born into that reality, that into that world. And so then when I finally read the thing at 23, <laughs> I mean, it really sent me totally pronoid. It's a paranoid um, piece of fiction. But the, it, the experience that I had was 
truly like an initiation into my tribe. Like I said, you know, all of these references had been dropped throughout my whole childhood and teenage years. And suddenly I got it. I got it all at this profound level. And I couldn't separate the fact that I had been named Eris. It was my middle name because that's the role that my mother was playing in the production when she, um, when she met my dad. And um, yeah, I mean, whether they actually conceived me backstage, that's how I like to tell the story. My mum said- great story. Me, yeah, exactly. I mean, they met, they met <laughs> during the production. My mum said, if you'd seen the backstage area, you wouldn't tell it like that. You know, because it was staged in essentially a squat um, that had been found by a local poet in Liverpool after he'd got himself a copy of Jung's Memories, Dreams and Reflections, right? And in that book on page 223, of course, um, he describes the dream he had of Liverpool, Carl Jung's dream of Liverpool. And so this poet chap, Peter Halligan, decided it was his commission from the forces of synchronicity to find the site of Carl Jung's dream in Liverpool. And, uh, and when he did indeed complete this quest and find the site of Carl Jung's dream, he noticed that this building on the corner of the streets was derelict. And so he claimed it, called it the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun, and phoned up my dad uh, to say, I think you should stick on a production here. My dad had just been to the legendary Compendium bookshop in Camden Town and got his hands on a very early edition of, uh, of Illuminatus. And, um, and he said, all right, well, I'll test this book then. So you say that Jung's dream of Liverpool takes place on page 223. Let's see what happens on page 223 of this book. And, um, and of course, on page 223, there's a whole passage about Carl Jung. So that was decided. And um, not only that, on the front cover of the Illuminatus trilogy was a yellow submarine. So yet more evidence that this was clearly supposed to be. And, uh, and so he, he decided to stage a Discordian production uh, by which, you know, he had like Discordian auditioning. Uh, if you were there on this particular hour of this day, whoever you were, then you were in it. No questions asked, you were in it. And, <laughs> and there were some serious luminaries in this, um, in this production. I mean, Jim Broadbent, Bill Nye, um, Chris Fairbank, who else was in it? I mean, wow. people, you know, all sorts of people's careers were launched. My mum, Prunella G, who was, a, you know, she'd, she'd left a serious career as a Bond girl and what and, and whatnot to uh, go and join this particular circus. And She was a Bond girl? Oh my goodness. She was, yeah, she wow. was a Bond girl. Um, so, and it was legendary. And then it ended up um, attracting the attention of the National Theatre um who were opening a you know a new a new um sort of more uh experimental space and it was the the show that they decided would would open that space so when bob um when the two bobs bob shay and bob wilson came over to see it the whole incredibly subversive very deeply magical weird production was being staged under the patronage of um her majesty the queen at the royal national theater <laughs> <laughs> I, it. I know lovely. it's brilliant I mean it's just wonderful and that I'm scratching the merest surface as you can imagine with the with the amount of wonderful stories that were connected to it and some pretty strange and tragic tales as well 
Um, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't all plain sailing. I mean, they were messing with forces they didn't fully comprehend and, um, and there were casualties for sure. And um, so that's probably why every time it got mentioned as a possibility that my dad might stage it again, um, you know, throughout, uh, throughout the years, he'd go rather white and look rather worried about it. Anyway, he also yeah, went on to stage, that. you know, you can imagine that, can't you? So he also mm. then went on to stage after that, a 24-hour production called The Warp. And, um, and I, I um, ended up learning the main part of the warp when I was 18 to sort of prove a point. That's a lot of, that's a lot uh, of lines. It's eight and a half times Hamlet, the, wow. warp, the, film, the film master's part of the warp. Yeah, it's insane. It's an extraordinary piece. And <laughs> anyway, that, that earned me the right to then direct it in my dad's eyes. So I ended up directing the world's longest play, it is in the Guinness Book of Records, um, The Warp, when I was sort of um, 19, 20. We did it quite a number of times. It ended up being part of a big sort of 24-hour club event and all sorts of stuff. And so having done The Warp all my life, people wanted to know, was I going to do Illuminatus? You know, I'd done one of, I'd sort of revived one of his great um huge great great mad productions was I going to revive the other and I'd remember his face going so white at, at its mention and I just knew it wasn't it wasn't the right thing and Cosmic Trigger I'd known in fact I read Cosmic Trigger before I read Illuminatus it, Cosmic Trigger was more like your experience, Roman, of, of reading Illuminatus at 17 for me. It was one of those books, as soon as I finished it, I was like, does this exist? Does this book exist? <laughs> you know, really? Well, you, know, you know what really struck me, really struck me when I uh, picked up Cosmic Trigger um, is there was a blurb by Philip K. Dick on the back. And yeah. I don't remember exactly the, the blurb because I don't have the book with me. Uh, but it was basically saying uh, I my my whole brain, my whole mind was turned inside out by reading this work and coming from yeah. Philip K. Dick. That's a huge statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cosmic Trigger is wonderful. I mean, I felt that, that it was it was a way to kind of pay homage to that Illuminatus production. Um, and it was a way to avoid just adding to you know the whole kind of operation can i say operation mind fuck yes sure you yes. can say you can say fuck i can i can say anything i yes, want Amazing. yes um <laughs> i didn't want to add to to the operation mind fuck that is illuminatus you know we've seen where that unpicking of reality from its anchors takes us right. and that was already gaining traction at that point and i knew i didn't want to just confuse the poor Discordians in my life yet further. <laughs> you know, I wanted to offer a bit of lucidity and a bit of lucidity, a, right? A, path, a bit of a path through Chapel Perilous, and that's what Cosmic Trigger is. You know, it's it's what happened to Wilson as a result of of getting involved with writing something so so alive. I mean, that's the only way I can describe Illuminatus. Is one of those books that's a living entity. You can't, yes. it's, you know, 
It's, you can't um, treat it lightly. You can't read it lightly. That's it doesn't give itself that way. Uh, even though it's not particularly a hard book to read, I mean it's a little joycey in here and there. This you know it's nonlinear because uh, uh, you know I think Wilson was a is a big proponent of modernism. You know Pound and Joyce, and so he he didn't write you know straightforward kind of way. At least not the Illuminatus. And and he used what guerrilla ontology or Oper- Operation Mindfuck. Uh, yeah. is a huge part of that book, right? Where it seems like it seems like it's been sort of subverted and 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 weaponized in in sort of in our more recent history, and all the humor, all the fun of was just completely squeezed out of it, and now it's become this weapon where you're just paranoid without any of that kind of of that well, sensation of like cosmic joke. From- Yes, absolutely. And I think the thing for me is that Chapel Perilous, you know, as as Wilson says, you either emerge from Chapel Perilous paranoid or agnostic. And um, and I actually I think the the kinds of experiences that you start to have when you step into kind of young land, you know, where synchronicities are just coming at you full force, it gets to the point you can't you can't be churlish or mealy mouthed about this stuff any longer. It's happening. It's real. Something beyond, you know, there are, there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of mm-hmm. space. And then, and then if you only are prepared to accept a completely rational worldview, you'll end up in QAnon. I mean, because what else can you do? You know, how else can it be? explained there has to be a healthy dose of agnosticism to say yeah mysterious forces are at work you know and that that's my that's my sense of kind of uh the right, people but who keep are on moving. very paranoid uh, right. yeah keep yeah if you if you stick around if you get stuck in the mud then you get you get uh you know hardening of their mental arteries so to speak and you and you 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 do land on some sort of a model that just you you think is is the way the right way the universe is working like QAnon or what what not. Right, exactly. And well, as Wilson says, you know, belief. He actually goes as far as to say belief is the death of intelligence. Mm. You know, or uh, Kerry Thornley puts it: convictions cause convicts. Convicts, you know? yes, yes. I think Rob is you. You've heard me say that before. <laughs> <laughs> I have. I. I. You know, uh, one question I would have is. What was the, um, you know, the metaphysical or spiritual point of view of, of Robert Anton Wilson? Um, I think, you know, I think for those of us who are a bit on the periphery of this, just kind of curious, um, you know, with Discordianism, is it is it a bit of an ironic point of view or is it a sense that there are great mysteries and, and um, you know, we need to yeah. have both a, a, a humorous, but an also respectful. I, I guess I'm getting at you know what's what's the religion here? In yeah. Well, I mean, separate Discordianism from Wilson for a start. Okay. Yeah, um, that's helpful. Yeah. So so Wilson was a multimodal agnostic, uh, is how he described himself. So he basically felt that um, that you know you you need to what it, when strange phenomena occur. Um, you usually need to apply more than one of the existing models. And so he was incredibly, I mean, way, way beyond what I could begin to describe here, incredibly well-versed and intelligent about quantum physics and, um, you know, um, all the kind of big, the the big prevailing metaphysical um, scientific perspectives. 
as well as chaos magic, as well as, um, um, you know, uh, Tantra and um, Hindu philosophy and Crowley's work and we've got in the Golden Dawn and all sorts of different um, perspectives that he would bring to everything. And so his feeling was that you would simply look to find models um, that would that would account for that, but you wouldn't limit yourself to only one model to account for any emergent phenomena. And you would sometimes have to settle for an and or approach. It could be this, it could be that. You know, as he said, agnosticism, as far as he was concerned, was the only humble stance that one could arrive at once you've, you know, experienced enough strange phenomena because of the various experiments and practices um, and paths that he engaged with. He couldn't, he couldn't rationally just ignore all of that stuff, but equally he was prepared to, to look to see what, you know, any different number of models that might help explain that and, right. and, and exist in that, you know, without settling, essentially. It's just a framework, Which even the framework itself, the model, the model, there's models, so it's multiple models. You don't, you know, even if you just think of like, where he called them reality tunnels. When you start yeah. putting uh, views, uh, worldviews in those terms, then you realize it's plural. It's always plural. It's not one worldview. Plural and mutable. That's it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Reality so is plural on, and yeah. mutable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He called it maybe logic it, also. You know, yeah. it, it makes me think how useful it would have been to have a voice like his inserted between, you know, when we had uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, advocating oh, atheism versus the, you know, the, the mm. religious fundamentalists on the other side. It, it would have been absolutely. interesting to have a third uh, agnostic point of view to help balance, um, absolutely. you know, this binary that gets really boring. Oh, it yeah. so does. And actually, that's the speech that I end the whole of Cosmic Trigger on, as he says, you know, I find it, I find it quite medieval that people really think that if you're not, you know, if you're not a dogmatic atheist then you therefore must believe in god or you you know if you don't this then you must believe in that it's like how why <laughs> you know why do we have to hold any beliefs actually what's that about so um yeah it's very is a great voice for these times and that's why i think cosmic trigger just hit a nerve it was just an extraordinary experience of, of, of working away for no money on spec, adapting this great, impossible to adapt thing. You know, it's not, it so what, lend what, itself so Daisy, to adaptation. You, right. And so a bunch of, <laughs> no. I mean, you really caused an uproar or some sort of a wave because people jumped on this uh, in, in, in multitudes. And, you know, somebody as a Discordian, I was always like, well, you know, there's few of us out there. We're, we're mm -hmm. by, by, by our own religion, we're supposed to stick apart. That's our thing. Yeah. At the same time, we also have this directive of finding the others. We find, you know, the people who are you know, sharing this kind of interesting ideas. Uh, but it was kind of a, a nothing was happening, really. I mean, I kept on buying Robert Anton Wilson's books up until his death in 2007. And I was following him. I sent him money when he was sick. I was all into that, but it was kind of the American side. I didn't really hear anything going on over there in England. And then this explosion of creativity with Cosmic Trigger really <laughs> blew me away because you then, Daisy, you went on to to uh, do the KLF. You directed, I think, the KLF's Welcome Back to the Dark Ages. Uh, you toured with mm -hmm. Alistair Fruish's uh, 
I think uh, the sentence, which is a a, a, a forty six thousand word novel, uh, all composed of monosyllables, uh, and and there's no punctuation. Uh, a single sentence, yeah. Single sentence, you know, book yeah. that you just performed, uh, which it has to be performed. I think it has to be really just like with Finnegan's Wake. I tell people you got to just perform it. You got to say it out loud. You can't just read it yeah. to yourself. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, so well, yeah, and it was. People just jumped on just, this, right? Well, it was. It was more. It was. It turns out um, that. You know, if you want to kind of pull the real good guys out of the woodwork where they've been, you know, hiding away, pretending to be normal for multiple years, um, <laughs> you, you, you cause celebration of Robert Anton Wilson and outcome the brilliant weirdos. Uh, and not the Discordians. You don't do it, you know, because there's a lot, plenty of Discordians, self-proclaimed Discordians who've never read any Robert Anton Wilson in their That's lives. True. And I'm not, interest, I'm not interested in that lot at all. In fact, I think they're quite dangerous. Um, but, um, but the, um, the, you know, Wilson fans are, are seriously good guys, you know, um, uh, because they don't believe their own bullshit. Cause they, you know, they've, they've been, they've looked at their reality tunnels and understood how their own belief systems have caused them, um, to be and think the way they do and have begun the work of unpicking that process. So they're, you know, open and creative and, and free thinking individuals. So what started to happen was um, we just, uh, myself and John Higgs started to do some talks up and down the country. We just met each other because he was working on a book that included a whole bit about Robert Anton Wilson. And we happened to live around the corner from each other. So, um, so we would, we were touring. It happened to. Um, and so we were touring, um, doing talks and I was, I'd, I'd pretty much adapted the, the book at this point, I was confident enough that, you know, it was well underway and I could start letting people know that this was what I was up to. But the entire time I'd been adapting it, I really thought like you did, this is so niche. I mean, are there any, you know, is there there anyone left who still rates this stuff? You know, it's pretty, um, it's pretty out there. And, and then as people got wind of it, I would just start getting more and more emails. Every time we did a talk, um, people would just come and thrust money in my hands to help towards the production. So we thought, well, we should do a crowdfund. So we set up a crowdfund and managed to raise over £23,000 to stage this beast. Meanwhile, it had grown from just being a four-hour show to being an entire weekend dedicated to the celebration of Rob Anton Wilson up in Liverpool on November 23rd which is a Discordian holy day. And it's also the day they staged Illuminatus up in Liverpool. That's all I knew was it had to open on November 23rd. I didn't care which one and, and open in Liverpool. And that's what I knew. Um, and um, which is nowhere near where I live, incidentally. So, um, and the, all of those um, factors just seem to bring, like I say, just the best people out of the woodwork, people who are prepared to just drop everything. People gave up their whole lives to come and just make this thing happen on the scale that they felt it needed to. And it really went off. And, well, it, and we we started to conceive it as a magical act. We were pulling the cosmic trigger. We didn't know what that meant, but we we knew that that, that feeling that we were getting, that the tribe was forming... Uh, and was forming around someone worth forming a tribe around. Do you know what I mean? That was what yes, was so yes. key. 
Um, and so from then, that weekend in Liverpool, from that, a whole group of people from Sheffield decided that we needed a regular festival. Festival 23 was born. And then people started creating, you know, fanzines and arts labs and, you know, getting together. And it was like we were passing the baton around, you know, right? You guys have done the heavy lifting to get us to this point. Let us lay on a festival for you now, right? Okay, we'll do, you know, now we'll um, get this caper underway. And, and so the whole thing became just a real virtuous circle of people being inspired by people to do wonderful things and and it's still on it goes i mean it hasn't stopped oh, yeah the ripple effect is continuing and it's expanding uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. my hope daisy is that it will somehow some of these incredibly creative waves will reach our shores because it seems like there's there's a bunch of you know, serious or maybe hilarious we should call them this you know robin anthony wilson fans uh here you know RoyalIllumination.net, the website uh, run by Tom Jackson. Um, there's a bunch of Discordians here as well, but we're not as organized or creative or, or something. I don't know. No, we're... no. I, th I think you haven't got the – we just haven't got the history. So whereas um, over here, you know, Illuminatus was released, then very quickly after it was released, it was staged. So it got kind of known – that way and turned a load of people on that way and then it inspired the KLF to use that mythology and they were the number one biggest selling singles artist in the country for a few years <laughs> like you know um winners of the Brit Awards before they symbolically shot the entire audience with machine guns <laughs> and then went off to bury the award <laughs> in Stonehenge and then go on to burn a million pounds later so you know that got some people's attention um so there's an unbroken chain here, whereas I feel like you guys over there didn't, you know, you haven't didn't got have that. that. We didn't have that sort yeah, of... Yeah, you didn't that, have that those sort of tracks that. to build on. I think, on, yeah. like, just to give that stupid analogy again, it's like, I think we're reading Finnegan's Wake to ourselves, quietly, as right. opposed to performing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't even have anything like a national theatre here, that at least not that's visible. So I think there's a different kind of um, also uh, tradition in England where you guys do take that stuff. Like it's important culturally. But a lot Here of that culture... was my dad. You know, that it was, really wasn't was. It? And, yeah, it really yeah. was. He, he, he was a total iconoclast. He wasn't doing what anyone else was doing in theatre. You know, the idea of staging for no money in a squat. Um <laughs> You know, a, a nine-hour science fiction madness. You know, well, he had that. He had that incredible else. show, um, his road show. Which uh, my son is a big, uh, huge um, Faulty Towers fan because uh, oh, yeah. I forced him. Not really forced him, but he was watching it with me when it was three and laughing for some reason because obviously he didn't get it. But uh, but he's a huge fan, so he sent me this um, link to some YouTube thing where John Cleese is kind of commenting on some of the episodes. And the yeah. anniversary episode in which your father appears, uh, it's got a great part. It's very funny. Uh, so he's yeah. talking about Ken Campbell. John Cleese is talking about Ken Campbell. And he goes, you know, Ken Campbell had this thing in the 70s, uh, the Ken Campbell Road Show, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and again, yeah. uh, just like with Philip K. Dick coming from John Cleese, that is incredibly oh, yeah. high praise. And yeah. he, you know, he would put down, he would put the ferrets down people's pants, your know, performance pants, live ferrets. 
Uh, it was a dismantling. Yeah, Sylvester energy. McCoy, one of the Sylvester McCoy, one of the uh, Doctor Who's, was uh, would put ferrets down his trousers, hammer nails <laughs> up his nose. Um, right. and it was all being done in like working class men's clubs. They just or they'd kind of just do it in the street and. Uh, and you guys, this video. This videos of this, <laughs> yeah. right? You can go to YouTube and Google Ken Campbell's Roadshow and watch them. It's just amazing. <laughs> And then Marcel Steiner, who was one of the members, had the world's smallest theatre, which was a mot motorbike sidecar that you could have one one per one audience at a time could sit in the <laughs> sidecar and have a, about twenty performers perform a show at them through the little window. <laughs> well, sir, sir, I have this little quote here from uh, Sir Peter Hall, director of the National Theatre. Uh, speaking of Ken Campbell, he is a total anarchist and impossible to pin down. He more or less said that it was a crime to be serious. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, that's that's it, spot on. Well, he and actually, you know, on a serious note, he really meant that. Like for him, it yes. was if he had any kind of religion, it was it was wild humor. He was in search of what he called the wild guffaw. <laughs> that's what he was after. Um, and no, I mean, there was no, no one quite like him. He really, um, was, was something else. Um, that man, I tell yeah. you, Daisy, I have, I have like about three people or three or four sort of personal idol idols, you know, George Carlin, Robert Antle Wilson and Ken Campbell. I mean, he's just, he's right yeah. up there. I've, I listen to his, uh, one man shows all the time. Uh, I think, uh, I think it's called the meaning of life. Uh, oh, which yeah, is a letter to Robin and to Wilson is kind yeah. of one of my favorites because there's also a video of it where he walks around his house there, the the property, and with his dogs, and <laughs> basically uh, performs this one man show, which which I think people miss a lot about Ken Campbell when I try to talk to him is because you know he talks kind of fast or he he has to sort of get on his wavelength, but the really important thing to do and to realize is that. Everything he's saying is important. Every little detail, you got to oh, pay yeah. attention. You got to pay attention because it all connects. It all That's connects it. somehow at the end. That's and it. it's, it's, it's just a magic show, really. A magic of, yeah. of I don't know. Yeah, storytelling. <laughs> yeah, no, no, story, serious storyteller. Absolutely. But, I mean, in, in answer to your um, question before of, of Cosmic Trigger coming over to the States, um, I think this is an exclusive, but re it's being published by Hilaritas Press imminently. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that someone, you know, as mad as me or as, and, and my dad might think, right, I'll stick it on. Well, I, I, I think know. I'm going to have to keep I have to start buying lottery <laughs> tickets because I don't usually I don't buy them at all. I never actually bought them except maybe for once. But I think it's time to start because... <laughs> And put a lot of 23s yeah. in the numbers that I pick because I will certainly, if I had the money, I would, I would bring you guys over here in a jiffy. I know, um, I know. Well, we, and, and, you know, like, absolutely. And who knows, maybe another crowdfund would make it so. I mean, we, the, the thing is, I've sometimes described Cosmic Trigger as like a poultice of weird. It's like wherever it is applied, it will draw out all the local weird. Um, and, and that is a good right. thing to, to, to start gathering up the... Um, you know, the proper the proper weirdos, the ones who really are prepared to to think um totally outside of any box. It's um Oh that would be that would be a just joy a, over here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that would be just absolutely joy, amazing. Sure. Uh I, I wanted to uh bring this back a little bit to books because supposedly we're a book podcast. So you're saying Hilaritas Press is going to publish 
uh, possibly triggered the play, the play script, right? Yeah, the right. play script Wonderful. is being published. Yeah, um, and, I mean, imminently. We haven't got an exact release date. There's just the last few bits being ironed out, but yeah, it's imminent. So, um, and I really, I really loved your book. Uh, also, uh, I guess one woman show, uh, Pittsburgh's Daughter. Yeah, that was a joy. That was to mark the 10 year anniversary since my dad died. So it was a kind of, um, you know, it was an invocation and then, and then, and, and, and um, oh God, I can't think of the word, you know, an ex, and what's the word? Ex- exorcism. It was an exorcism. Yeah, it was an invocation and an exorcism is what that was. Yeah. Sometimes good to be an ex Catholic. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Well, you know, Robert um, Anthony Wilson was also an ex-Catholic. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, ex-Catholics are always the most esoteric. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. No, those nuns haunted him forever. I'm sure they were really the, the inspiration for the Illuminati, the nuns of his childhood. Yeah. So Pittsburgh's Daughter is also available from Hilaritas Press? It is. is. That yeah, that... that's right. Yeah. Wonderful. So it's hilaritaspress.com, folks, if you go there. Um, they have some really exciting stuff. They're, they're keeping uh, Robert Anthony Wilson's legacy alive and then some, I think. So yeah. it's it's a wonderful thing to support. Um, your dad has this, one of the things that I've adopted for myself, I'm not mad, I've just read different books yeah. line. I love that line. Uh, he he was on BBC defending books like uh, Vali, Valis, you know, the Philip, Philip K. Dick, yeah. strange post-74 books. Um yeah. And I read one of, I, you know, following the breadcrumbs as I usually do when I find exciting and amazing people, I, I, I've come across this book by Theodore Rozak called Flickr. Oh, which, man, uh, that's great. It's an amazing work that people are really not aware of. It's, yeah. it's better than Umberto Eco, I think, as far as, you know, the pendulums, uh, Foucault's pendulum. Oh, yeah, I think so. That kind of genre. Uh, it's a wonderful story. And Rob, uh, Theodore Rozak was uh, a Harvard professor. He, um, he was, he became kind of popular for this one book, uh, the making of the counterculture, which is, also I believe brilliant. the seventies book, yeah. also brilliant book. It's kind of explained the sixties to an older generation a little and, bit. And coined the phrase uh, counterculture. He coined it. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. He coined it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Didn't know with that. that. Yeah, well, I probably that knew that forgot at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, so this book he wrote uh, in retirement, right? I believe Flickr. It's this very long uh, fiction book, and there's a, a kind of a cryptic thing on its Wikipedia page that says King Campbell was thinking of staging it. Yeah. Uh, is that true? It's absolutely true, and and it's that's one which I sort of do scratch my head about sometimes. But it got it was meant to Darren Aronofsky. Um, got really quite far with with into pre-production with the film. I mean, to the point where my copy of Flickr, I don't know if yours says, says now a major motion picture by Darren Aronofsky, but that motion picture never materialised, did it? And it's kind of an interesting thing to try and adapt into a film because it's really one of its key themes is that all film is um, contains subliminal Cathar messages designed to turn us all off sex such to such a degree that we wind up the entire human population. <laughs> so I was That's wondering, they own- I thought, well, Aronofsky, yeah. would, you know, it's a good choice. I mean, he could throw in some good subliminal messaging. I reckon it's, um, but um, right. so no, that it's, never it's, happened. It's meant and to be a film. Y- yeah. I think it, yeah. I mean, 
that was the big I remember I sat in on quite a few of those meetings so I worked with my dad a lot you know closely and um I mean it never got as far as anyone actually beginning an adaptation but the big question mark was what do you do about all the um film stuff the sub, you know so much of it is is subliminal messages in films and what do you do about that theatrically you do that on stage i think you do that on in, in cosmic trigger a little bit this is there's sort of not maybe completely subliminal but things flicker on stage yeah yeah of, yeah uh, you can you can get video. you can get some stuff going mm-hmm. but yeah so that was one of the question marks and then a rather like illuminatus it kind of doesn't quite get you to the satisfying ending you might hope does it it didn't, it didn't, I mean, it's such a romp. No, no, but, but I do remember finishing quite, it and, yeah. and wondering, yes, yes. Yeah. But it was a whopper of a read. I really recommend this book oh, to anybody wonderful. who's listening. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, it's an incredible book. It just, it makes you, again, it, it gets you into some sort of a chapel perilous situation where you're not sure <laughs> what the heck is going on. Uh, but it's also kind of a, a standard, relatively conventional novel that, uh, you know, you can just not you don't have to have a degree in, in English literature to read it. Um it's very it's a it's a whopping story. There's like a definitely, you know, you just follow it. You want to know what happens next. Yeah. Uh but it's also just so weird. And the the whole Cathars connection, which then your dad works into a whole bunch of of his monologues. Oh he was obsessed uh, with the Cathars, which I've rather inherited. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was absolutely <laughs> obsessed with the Cathars. Um and the great Gnath thing. Yeah. Um, what is it? Gnothing. Well, gno- you know, gnostics are those who gno, they gno, they gno. Um, and um, so that, I mean, yes, I, because of, oh God, it's nearly two years ago now, but I ended up leading and a whole, the 69 pilgrims on a great um, caper to yes, the yes, center so of nothing. to be nothing. one of those pilgrims. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, that was a kind of Cathar mission. It was to go and commune commune with the nothing, which we reckoned was CERN in Switzerland. So we went on a pilgrimage to the centre of of um, CERN. That's that was and the way a, that developed. Yeah, the, the way that the whole thing developed with the dreams and and <laughs> and dreaming of this giant on the hillside. It's you know this ancient giant painting of this person with a hard on <laughs> and then going from the hard on to the hadron collider the wonderful well, player that, words. it's called the cern giant so it was cern to the cern. cern giant right yeah it from was cern to cern it was cern to cern <laughs> the large hard on to the large hadron and then but then yes the, then my friend kate the dreamer dreamt that we'd all gone to Damanhur, the italian community in the alps and learn to dance that we had to perform when we got to the center of Damanhur. So I ended up setting all that up and we stopped off at the temples of Damanhur to learn a sacred dance. They took that completely in their stride. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world that 69 mad Discordians would turn up on a double-decker bus and um, learn a dance. And the dance, she dreamt what the phrase was because they have a dance language, which she didn't know as the dreamer. Didn't had no idea about that. Um, but um, yeah, they have a dance language, and she, in the dream, we were all dancing the phrase "show us so we can understand" at the center of the nothing. So which we duly did, and um, and I and I need to check in with all the pilgrims and find out if they've all understood, because I've certainly been on quite a trip since I have to say. Well, yeah. I, you you had that that ritual where you were, you know imminentizing the eschaton, which is a. 
a kind of a, a thing that happens in the Illuminatus oh, no, I'm trilogy. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> no, because you know what? At the appointed day and appointed time, I was in my seat in, in Astoria, Queens, New York, and I was buzzing and humming and spinning around and trying to yeah. be part of this whole thing. Uh, and I really felt something, I tell you. I don't know, something happened there. Maybe we just have to well, wait a little bit for the, you know, to oh, see how it turns out. Well, I out. don't know. I've been, uh, there's a few people got in touch when the global pandemic hit and went, yeah, thanks for that. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. We yeah, well, the eschaton and ended story and reset the world. And, um, and um, well, also birthed a magical child, which we had no idea was what would happen if you unite an enormous ancient hard-on with the greatest void of nothingness in the universe. Which is, with, like with it's fucking the world. Seems obvious. <laughs> <laughs> with retrospect, seems very obvious. Maybe that was the conclusion of Operation Mindfuck. Maybe that was a symbolic conclusion of it. I think it was. And you know what? I, it, it actually, the phrase that got coined very soon after we finished the ritual was all heal discordia rather than all hail discordia. discordia. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think that's definitely uh, um, one, something that's, that's come through. Um, Time does but heal yeah, all there's wounds. this beautiful, it does seem to. So there's this beautiful wooden child that now is, um, is being passed around amongst the orphan keepers. Um, ad infinitum until we until any other signs are in uh, and of course we only found out after this whole um you know it all came through in dreams and weird synchronicities again and whatnot it was like oh my god does anyone else think we might have conceived <laughs> yes i think we have maybe <laughs> well, what's the gestation <laughs> period for a magical child i don't know and i find myself on a mountain being told this story about how inspiration was born on this very mountain and took had to be stirred for a year and a day and it's when Merlin the magician first appeared and I was like okay so this is where the child's going to be born then so it's been carved from a piece of wood from the top of a mountain in Snowdonia uh etc anyway it's honestly what it's been a right trip and and it's off it's off it just gets passed amongst the orphan keepers and then we find out that the Cathars were originally the orphan keepers because of course Cathar doctrine was no procreation so in order to carry on the Cathar line, they had to look after the orphanages. Yeah, so they were the orphanages. It all connects. It all connects somehow. It all what's the word, connects. What's the word? Apophenia. Apophenia. Connecting things Apophenia, that don't that's it. seem to be yeah. connected, but really are, or at least you connect them as, as uh, you're, the, you're the sort of the connector. Pattern recognition. Yeah, who is, who is the master that makes the grass right. green, as they, uh, as they sing in the Cosmic Trigger play? Yes. Yes. No, yeah, that's, that was that's one of those it. things. It's, that all, I, it's all I in what reality channel you choose. And if, if you chose The problem is I got trained up in story structure. My dad took me on the Robert McKee story structure course when I was about 11. So and at one point in this, in this training, you know, it's just like he's the sort of screenwriting guru. Yeah. And, um, and at one point he says, well, you know, you get your characters to live these extraordinary stories to the end of the line because no one can actually live their lives that way. And I remember my little 11 year old head going, can't they? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the nightmare is that if you start to live your life according to setups and payoffs and, and, you know, denouements and, and season endings and, you know, you, oh man. It's, um, it's a little crazy. You end up in some very strange yes. places. Yeah, things get crazy fast. But it's no less a valid reality tunnel than any other, is it? 
Well, so how do you, how do you how do you keep your keep your direction through all this madness? How do you? I guess I think laughter is for me uh, a key device to to get out of jams. Uh, no pun intended. There. Yes, banish with laughter. Yes. Yes. Uh, Banished with laughter. I don't know. Alan Moore. We met. We Alan Moore got involved in the production of Cosmic Trigger quite early on, and he said to me, "Well, you see, Daisy, there's there's art and magic are the same thing. You know, if you want to understand more about art, study magic. If you want to understand more about magic, study art. And um, but he said there's also high art and high magic, and high, and that's when." You don't know what the fuck you're doing. You just proceed as if, as if everything is a sign from the universe. Um, so that I've been operating off that principle for about the last four years. And um, it seems all right. I mean, you know, you definitely get, get, in, you get into some interesting scrapes. It's part of your dad's jest uh pamphlet which I, I i hope there is a pamphlet because he went to on this uh, oh there is yeah. uh, the s the est uh sort of human potential i don't know exactly what they call them things that happened in what the 70s the 80s uh yeah, with Werner Werner Erhard. Erhard, yeah. this guy this kind of mysterious guru guy uh so he goes to this and it's, it's a wonderful monologue <laughs> that he is part of this and he comes up with his own version it's called jest you know J. <laughs> So to kind of to view yeah, things exactly. to, that happen as kind of an ultimate joke on you or something like that, right? And That's right. Yeah. No, well, because the original Est pamphlet had all these questions like, will I be made to That's look it. foolish? Will I be allowed to go to the toilet? And he'd <laughs> redone them for the jest pamphlet. It was like, will I be made to look ridiculous? No, you will come to realize how ridiculous you already are. And you know, it was all this kind of thing. And he did it. He did the whole, he did a whole jest workshop, which... Um, I think was pretty cathartic for all concerned. I mean, the thing that surprised him was that people came actually needing <laughs> what he was offering. He just thought it was going to be a bunch of sort of, you know, silly people and he could get a few stories out of it. But people, serious people came who were genuinely in need of some jest in their lives. And he found himself, you know, having to play the... the, the, the was this the recorded by any chance, of... Daisy? Was this like, is there a record of this <laughs> seminar? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. No, I mean, but you can. He tells the story of it, doesn't he? In, he does. Uh, in one he of does. Those yes. One man shows. Yeah. What about no, the pamphlet? He wasn't is there, big on is there an image of the stuff. pamphlet? Somewhere? Yeah, I've got the pamphlet. I've got the pamphlet. Oh, I'd like it, to when see it turns that. off in the archive, I'll, uh, I'll yeah, I'll send you a pic whenever I next come across one. I want to. I want to make sure that people know where to go, Daisy. Be, uh, the seeker, the seekers podcast, right? Ken Campbell, the seekers podcast. Is that what it's called? Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, you guys I go think there. It's available because, on all wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, there's yeah. there's um, a bunch of the the these uh, shows that Ken Campbell did, and like I said, there for me there are sort of you know the the new and the old testament combined. I just love listening to them because I <laughs> end up laughing, end up sort of getting through difficult points in my life. Um, I, I just don't know how he did this incredible trick. I would call it a trick, but it's one whopper of a trick of turning it is a trick turning this this thing into some sort of a cosmic joke, not in a bad sense, but in a very profound sense. And I, yes, he always managed to bring all the threads together. But that's why the whole trip to CERN took place because when I was writing a one woman show in homage to my dad, I knew it had to be fiendishly well structured to to kind of you know, play, play the game as he, as he'd sort of drawn it. 
Um, but I thought, but what does he always do at the end? He always brings everything to this extraordinary climax where, you know, completely surreal and mad. There'll be volcanoes exploding and Prince Philip has, I don't know, kidnapped the nothing from CERN and the Cathars. I don't know. You know, but all these crazy threads will come together to this kind of huge, mad climax at the end. And I thought... Right. So I've got to not only bring my show to some kind of wonderfully mad climax, but I thought, oh, do you know what? If I then actually do it, then I've won, haven't I? I'll have beaten him because he never actually then went and did it. Um, so that was um, that was the kind of the seed that grew into the sun. Well, he had his own papers, right? He went yeah. to the South Pacific. I mean, like you just mentioned, Prince Philip. Oh, he, he went yes. to British Columbia, and for some reason now, I really, really have to watch uh, Anne of Green Gables. Uh, you know, it's, it's just he did yes. have his capers, yes. and I think you you are no his. Oh no, he absolutely yeah. had his capers. But what I mean is, he you know the way that he'd tie all those threads up into some kind of brilliantly sur surreal thing. Um, I think he mentioned yeah. that he he did that by writing the the end first. Is that do you know his secret of how he did this incredible task? I mean, that's just uh... a lot of um, he'd use a lot of index cards, and you know there'd be he would. I mean, his notebooks are just extraordinary. I've got thousands of literally thousands of notebooks. And it's, you know, if you if you open one, you're done for. I mean, you can't you're not coming up for air until you've read the whole thing. And it's they're just full of the most wonderful, potty, strange <laughs> insights. So he would just collect up all of these insight sites. And then usually he needed a commission. And for a while, he was really lucky. The National Theatre just kept commissioning him to do more one-man shows so then so that's why he went to the south pacific because he said i've run out of life so if you want more shows out of me you can have to send me somewhere interesting so i can go and do some more life and um so they agreed to send him to the south pacific and he came back with that with that we got quite he got loads of material out of that and then not only that he, he ended up deciding that the world needed to learn pidgin english as a world language Listen, world, it's a bit backward. You can't all speak to each other, isn't it? I've we figured out that you could all have a world language by next Thursday. If everyone just stops what they're doing and learns pidgin English, it's got no tenses. It's got, you know, there's only about 500 um, words in the whole vocabulary. Just string them together. And, uh, and so as part of this mission, he got me to translate Macbeth into pidgin English. And we ended up managing to get... Macbeth in Pigeon English on in the West End. Um, Gotta love that. Not and that, as if as if that wasn't hard enough. We were we were we were performing Macbeth in Pigeon English, but that was deemed too easy. So we actually all learn every part, and at the beginning of each performance, the entire cast did a hacker. You know, <laughs> like like the New Zealand rugby players. We had to do a hacker to show the audience who the ancestors were moving through tonight. And uh, and then the, based on their applause, they would choose their Macbeth, their Lady Macbeth and their Macduff. And then everyone would sort of fall into the parts that that would mean they were playing. Um, insane. So insane. You know, that was <laughs> it, that was his thing. As I like, oh, basically, this is how it works. I will give you impossible things to do and then shout at you when you can't do them. And uh, he did. I mean, boy, I mean, some of the stuff that he does to the actors is pretty, 
pretty rough. I mean, a lot of people I think didn't survive that kind of treatment. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, there were <laughs> there were casualties, but at the same time, like if you out of context, if you just hear what a legendary temper he had, and sometimes it was scary and too much, you know. But there was something about his temper that also unlocked his kind of demonic genius, and he could be so funny and come out with these unbelievable turns of phrase and you know um when he was you know truly enraged so people just I mean Jim Broadbent tells a story of of him laughing at um at this this (laughs) they had um pigs involved in one of the productions that Jim Broadbent was in and the pig keeper was a, a salt of the earth type called Mike Hurst and uh, Jim Broadbent made some slightly disparaging comment about how smelly Mike Hurst was or something. My dad said, leaned right in and said, that is a maggot's view of the mighty. And completely <laughs> <laughs> telling off Jim Broadbent right in his face. But Jim tells this story with such relish. He was just like, I couldn't believe, you know, and it, that was just one part of this legendary tirade, you know, that that followed. But... So, you know, those that could handle it kind of would let it happen because he was, I mean, he was, wasn't quite of this earth. He was some sort of strange. It really feels like the, he had something in touch with that, that, that great nothing, the great laughing or nothing, that he was, had some sort of <laughs> conduit to it and was just, was just, we just had, had to kind of just hang on to what he was saying and get a glimpse of that somehow yeah. ourselves. Yes. It was, it was he was a an, a mystic, but of but where his whole um, belief system was the, the extraordinary what does he call it the eternal ineffable laughter that's you know rather than enlightenment he was after the wild guffaw or eternal ineffable laughter yeah, yeah. and but it was like a true mission it wasn't a, an artistic you know construct or anything it was that really really was well i think that's where the power comes from all the way through that's where the power comes from if it was yeah. just for laughs it wouldn't well i think robin Anton wilson has no. a beautiful turn of phrase let's see if i can come up with it if you only laugh you if you don't laugh you miss the point if you only laugh you miss your chance for illumination and uh, i love that quote right. it stuck with me all these years because and i've lived by it so whenever I make fun or That's joke it. something about something, it's you know I, I try to sort of see the other side as well, um, because there's always That's at least it. two yeah. sides. Um, so it's yes, absolutely. So I'm I'm just loving yes, and I want I want to talk a little bit about I think what you're doing at um, is it the journey to Utopia? Is it next week? Because I signed up for that. Is it? I believe it's oh, have you. Oh, no, maybe two weeks, March twenty eighth. It's going to be at the Cockpit Theatre, which is a lovely name for a theatre. Um, well, that's where we did Cosmic Trigger right? the most recent time. It's not actually, we're not actually going to be there. You know, we're all Virtual, on Zoom. right, right. Like, but, yeah, but, you know, everything. But you're going to be talking Zoom about but, ways of sort of seeing our way through this nihilistic, negative time that we're living in. And I'm, I'm just wondering. Is that right? Can, is that what it says in the blurb? I don't know what it says. Let me see what it says in the blurb. I'm glad you gave me a heads up. It's an open conversation about positive future narratives that refutes the inevitability of global dystopia. 
It's a mouthful. Oh yeah, well that's new. That's Newtopia's mission overall. Yes, that good. Yes, well that's totally that's fine. So you get that's fine. And Robert Anton Wilson is a big is a big piece of that puzzle. I think. Right. I do just feel for anyone who's feeling despairing about the whole. Um, you know, well one of one of the great lines of the Discordians is reality is what you can get away with. You know, which when I first heard it made me laugh immoderately. And now when I hear it makes makes my skin crawl, you know. Um, but that's that's what's so um that's what's so kind of fascinating. The did you see the recent Adam Curtis um doc series of documentaries? Because he's made big play of the yeah, I've heard of yeah, it. I think he, I think Eric Davis uh spoke very very well of it, and I'm definitely it's on my queue to watch, uh, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think the Discordians are definitely being reevaluated. And as Eric Davis said, he sort of talked about how there were the, um, how did he say it? There were the heads and the fists, um, but then there were also the freaks, you know. That, so you've got, you know, the heads who want to live differently, do, cha- make the change through lifestyle, the fists who are going to fight for it. And then the freaks who do things like go and try and levitate the Pentagon right. or, um, you know, run a pig for president or whatever. And, and, and in a way, this is what we're talking about tonight or, you know, on this, this show is, is the freak line. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> and, um, and, it's, and it's significance. And it is, it, it's, it's the mercurious, you know, um, the mercurial, the mercurious, it's Aries. <clears throat> it's the importance of uh, never forgetting that um, the random factor is always in 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 every in, in everything. Nothing is locked down, which is also incredibly hopeful because if things can go tits up as suddenly and as frighteningly as they recently have, then they can go whatever the opposite of tits up is too. I think. <laughs> What the opposite of tits up is tits to, tits down. Well, wherever it goes, we're gonna we're gonna follow. You're gonna follow that. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. <laughs> oh well, Daisy, this this has been such a pleasure. Uh, I think we should probably let you go since we had so many technical issues. We really appreciate uh, you joining us and talking about all this. It's uh, just uh, lovely, chaotic, but well, I, uh, creative yeah. stuff, you know. Um, right. Well, I hope it makes some sense if you're if you're not initiated. But if you're not, why not? Get on with it. Go and read some. Yeah, Atlanta exactly. Go read nothing, those. Nothing better books. to do for your head. Yeah. yeah. Listen to Ken Campbell. Yeah. I think I think this this this. <laughs> if you haven't been on this path, get on this path because it's a it's 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 the it's the yellow brick road. It'll get you there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, Daisy, thanks you once again so Thank much. You, Daisy. Uh, and well. Hoping to oh, keep up pleasure. with things. I'm my sorry, pleasure. Rob, I didn't let you <laughs> have a word in there. Oh, Rob, I'm so sorry. No, I enjoyed listening. <laughs> uh, any, any final questions, that. Rob? Any any no, it, any it, questions? It's been a great great conversation. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Daisy. Thanks again. Lovely. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thanks again for asking me. Really, uh, really appreciate it. All right, bye bye. That was Robertson Roman talking to guest Daisy Eris Campbell. Look out for the Playscript version of Cosmic Trigger coming soon to Hilaritis Press. Hilaritis also publishes Daisy's play Pigspert's Daughter. You can find Feeling Bookish on Twitter at FeelBookish and on Instagram at Feeling Bookish Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.